Yet things may have gone far otherwise and far worse. When you think of the great battle of Pelennor, do not forget the battles in Dale and the valor of Durin's folk. Think of what might have been. Dragonfire and savage swords in Eriador. Night in Rivendell. There might be no queen in Gondor. We might now hope to return from the victory here, only to ruin and ash. But that has been averted. Hey there, Tolkieners. I'm Danny J. And I'm Joel N. And welcome back to Keep On Tolkien. Tolkien. Yeah, episode 53. Damn, a lot of episodes. Yeah, we're going. We're going, we're going. Uh, so today, we've been talking about doing this episode for a while, and I'm excited. Yeah, we've uh, kind of fantasized about it for yeah, a while. And honestly, we think this might be like a new series now, because... We realize we yeah. could definitely do more than one. Yeah, definitely do more than one of these. So today, we're talking about lesser-known battles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, God, there are so many battles in Tolkien. Right. Yeah, so yeah, when we're talking about lesser-known battles... We just mean that uh, we want to touch on some of the ones that we think haven't really gotten the attention they deserve. Their fair shake. Right, because the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion are filled with so many awesome battles. Yeah, they just offhandedly mention battles right. all the time. Yeah, yeah, some of them just kind of fall by the wayside. So we thought we'd kind of have an episode touching on some of those battles that, that might not get the attention they need. Yeah, yeah. But uh, before we jumped into some of these lesser-known battles, we thought it'd just be a, a good time to maybe touch on the subject of why there are so many goddamn battles in Tolkien. Like, there's actually so many that we have to have an episode about the fact we can't talk about them talk all. Talk about them all. And yeah, and that's the thing we were just talking about while we were just warming up here. Like, we can't really think of any other fantasy with the exception of few high fantasy things that have this much war in them. Yeah, and a lot of them are usually inspired by... Right, yeah, Tolkien. they come after their... We're know. looking at you, J.R. Martin. Yeah, I don't want to say derivative, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but as as we all know, the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion are known for their stunning and well-written battles. They're super tantalizing to read, and they're almost always backed up with some kind of crazy, legit history. Yeah, that's another thing we were talking about, too, is like they have history leading up to, uh, the political history leading up to the battle, and then the uh, implications of what happens afterwards are pretty realistic when it comes to, you know, that type of warfare slash conquest. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As many of us might know, J.R.R. Tolkien was a lieutenant during the First World War, and he fought in the Battle of the Somme, which really sucked if you've never heard of it. Yeah, World War One is basically known as one of the most traumatizing wars in history, largely due to the use of trench warfare. Yeah, it was really the war when uh, technology got ahead of us. Yeah, it got ahead <laughs> of us before we put kind of a moral code a on moral it. A moral code. Got, so I like, guess yeah. when we were using gases and all sorts of crazy, oh, horrible yeah. things. Machine guns and mortars, all kinds of fun stuff. So, Rachel Camberry, who's a writer and editor specializing in war and military literature and history, she writes in an article called The uh, War Without Allegory, World War I, Tolkien, and The Lord of the Rings. She says, quote, The Lord of the Rings is a complex investigation of war and trauma, nature and industrialization, comradeship and loss. Yeah, that just kind of really puts it so perfectly. Like, yeah, it's a nail on the head. Describe The Lord of the Rings in one sentence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she goes on in her article to talk about how The Lord of the Rings is basically a war story, and it heavily reflects the writing style of old English warrior poetry like Beowulf or The Wanderer. Yeah, dude, Beowulf is so great. You I can definitely it. feel that in especially some of his earlier writings. Oh, yeah. 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 Did you read Beowulf? I think we read it in oh, school, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, we definitely yeah. went through that. That was fun. Yeah, I love Beowulf. Tolkien was also uh, steeped in the uh, same putrid conditions, the, the Petri dish, if you will, that gave us... Some of the great uh, famous novels of World War One, All Quiet on the Western Front, being one of my favorite books ever. Yeah, we've talked about that a few times. Yeah, uh, uh, par uh, Parade's End, and also a, fail a Farewell to Arms, Some, just to name a few. And a lot of, um, my, pretty much all my favorite poetry ever comes from World War One as well. Yeah, and these novels are all very 
dark, very gritty. Yeah, very hopeless. Very hopeless, very realistic. And so, yeah, they they really reflect the experiences of their authors. And Tolkien was right in there with these guys. Oh yeah. And I think you know, as you and I talk about all the time, he, some of his stories really reflect that darkness. Oh yeah. So during World War II, Second Lieutenant John Ronald Rule Tolkien was a battalion signaling officer to the Eleventh Lang. Oh, I'm going to pronounce this right, Lancashire. I think it's Fusiliers. It's uh, <laughs> it's Lancashire Fusiliers. I think. I think you're right. Thank you for that. There's British people listening that are just like, God, these Shake guys, it. it's oh, these fucking terrible. American assholes. <laughs> Yeah, so at his post, uh, seeking relief from you know boredom, chaos, complete brutality, you know all of the distractions of the war, uh, Tolkien would write on scraps of paper. He'd uh, write in grimy canteens at lectures on cold, foggy mornings. He'd write in huts full of smut and horrible things going on. And he'd write by candlelight and bell tents, and even some down in the dugouts and in the trenches under shell fire. So it just became what he basically do to yeah. distract himself just to, to escape time. yeah it's funny that you talk about how you write on scraps of paper uh because uh i don't know if we mentioned this on another episode or not but like there's the you know that legendary story where he found a piece of paper and wrote in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit yeah yeah which was just like a habit that he had from the war because like paper was so hard to find that mm-hmm. like when you found a blank piece of paper you were like oh boy as a as a writer mm-hmm. so yeah that was because he wrote that uh, the hobbit was that was during the second world war right when the paper drives were going on he wrote that actually while he was a professor correcting papers yeah but it was during one of the paper drives yeah it very well could have been yeah yeah Yeah, so he's writing these stories basically during the war and all these terrible conditions and at first his stories were you know quote-unquote fairy tales or fairy stories little vignettes uh, concerning gnomes and sprites and elf-like creatures and you know just the kinds of stories that tolkien had been in love with since he was a kid since he learned how to read yeah, but it wasn't until later on, really, that the his work kind of took a darker tone. And uh, when he was sent back to England with trench fever during the Battle of the Somme, um, two Tolkien's closest friends were killed. And uh, that's when Tolkien wrote out the haunting epic of the Fall of Gondolin. Yeah, that was really the beginning, I feel like. And so, yeah, naturally, like we said, all of these dark experiences really reflected in his in his writing, and uh, we think that has a lot to do with why there are so many battles, and also just why the battles are so great and realistic. Yeah. And uh, so we thought we'd just kind of end off this uh, first section here with a quote from Simon Tolkien, who's uh, J.R.R.'s grandson. I went back to The Lord of the Rings and realized how much of his grand conception had been informed by the horrors of the trenches. Evil in Middle-earth is above all industrialized. Sauron's orcs are brutalized workers. Saruman has a mind of metal and wheels. And the desolate moonscapes of Mordor and Isengard are eerily reminiscent of the no-man's land of 1916. Yeah, after reading that, I had never really considered that, how so many of like the scenes that you think of in Lord of the Rings are totally reminiscent of old lo- No Man's Land and Trench yeah. Warfare. Like. Or like uh, the Anfalgleith. Yeah, the Anfalgleith. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah, that must have just been like a wasteland. The gasping dust. Yeah, so like we mentioned, his uh, Tolkien's experiences really changed him, and this is reflected in his in his tales. So that, that got a little heavy, but that's the implication of what we're talking about here, guys. But uh, Right, that being said. That being said. That had to be said. Let's start with our first battle. And this is one of our favorites, and we talk about it uh, a decent amount on here. And that is what, Joel? We're going to talk about the Battle of Dale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is what the opening excerpt was uh, talking about. So I'm sure a lot of folks, when you think of the Battle of Dale, you'll probably think of, like, the Hobbit, like, when Smog attacked yeah, Dale's yeah. stuff. The that's fall not, of Dale, yeah. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. No, no, this is this, this is later on in that magic year of Third Age, 3019, which everything happens in the Lord of the Rings. It's like Balls Deep War of the Rings stuff. Yeah, and this is March 15th of that year. Yeah, and March 15th is a pretty infamous date because uh, it's either the 15th and or the 16th is when three major battles happen. Mm-hmm. Most well-known is the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Horror show. Yeah, an absolute horror show. But not many people realize that at the same time as that battle, there were actually two other battles going on at the same time. One of them was up in Dale, and that's what we're talking about first. And then there was also one that happened in Mirkwood, which we're going to talk about next, so get ready. Yeah, because if you think about it, it makes sense because like 
the assault on Gondor's assault from the southeast, right? Right. It's supposed to be like an all-out war against men. Like, why is it so concentrated right there? Yeah, you'd have people because the the northeast is is hostile territory as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that uh, Ravanian region is really at risk of Easterling invasion. Right. So on March fifteenth. In the year 3019 of the Third Age, this is when Sauron moves an army towards the city of Dale. So the dwarves of Erebor and the men of Dale had basically refused to acknowledge the overlordship and alliance of Sauron. He had offered that to them earlier, and they basically said, fuck you. Right. Which they talk about at the Council of Elrond, right? Yep, they talk about that at the Council of Elrond, yeah. So the current leaders right now are Dane II Ironfoot. He's king of the dwarves of Erebor, and the king Brand is king of the men of Dale. Brand is actually the son of Bard uh, the Bowman. Bard the Bowman's son, yeah. Yeah. While Sauron's larger southern armies invaded Gondor, a host of Easterlings advanced in the north to prevent the armies of his enemies joining together. Yeah, because, I mean, they could have used the help down at Pelennor. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And and that's kind of, yeah, it's like, you kind of think, like, why didn't anybody from... Yeah, why didn't anybody else show up? I mean, there's a ton of people. Like, even people came from... uh, Dol Amroth and shit. Like. Oh yeah, yeah. Because Gondor was empty. They talk about that in the book. But yeah, the, nobody from the no, the Northmen don't show up, which is uh, this is why they're busy. Yeah, they're busy. And so on the seventeenth is when Sauron's army gets to finally makes it to the city of Dale, and they begin attacking the city of Dale. Sauron's forces were uh, probably more numerous, but the armies of the men of Dale and Erebor, they had uh, the advantage that uh, they had superior uh, dwarf make weaponry. Yeah, Dale yeah. and Dale and Erebor had been living pretty well together for the past, well, probably a couple, couple decades at least. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. Uh, yeah, they've had time to make that nice dwarven fucking armor and shit. Yeah, because by this time, King Brand and, uh, and uh, Dane are like... Yeah, they're, they're very good friends. Yeah. yeah, they're working together. Yeah, so after three days of heavy close quarters fighting, Kings Brand and Dane were forced to retreat into the Lonely Mountains, so they had to give up Dale. And you know that's uh, some shit there. Yeah, and he this is this is the one of the first times also that um, one of the kings under the mountain has allowed like refugees of men also in also into the into the Terrible, kingdom. Yeah. yeah. A few sturdy warriors led by Brand and Dane, they fought bravely defending the gate of Erebor, which was not taken. Yeah, the gate remained closed and right up front, both of the kings. And uh, King Dane was killed as he stood defending the body of his already dead ally, King Brand. And uh, the defenders of the mountains were now under siege. So both of the kings died and Dane was defending the body of, of Brand, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. But after the forces of Gondor and Rohan defeated the main power of Sauron in the Battle of Pelennor Fields on March 25th, the Easterlings began to lose heart. Yeah, seeing that the morale of their foes was wavering, the army of Dale and Erebor under the new kings, Bard II and Thorin III Stonehelm, they managed to lift the siege on Erebor on that same day, and they drove the Easterlings completely out of Dale. Dude, I imagine, like, as far as these kind of old battles take place, the breaking of a siege must have been the wildest event. Because, like, you're sitting there for how long? You know, months, could be years. Yeah. And all of a sudden, just, like, boom, just vomits (laughs) out. Like, oh, shit, they're breaking the siege. Oh, it's happening now. (laughs) All about surprise. Surprise, bitch. Yeah, so the sons of Dane and Brand who are Brand 2 and Thorn 3, they break the siege. And that more or less brings an end to the Battle of Dale. But uh, this battle was incredibly important in the course of the War of the Ring. Oh yeah, instrumental. If Sauron's Easterlings, Easterling armies had beaten the dwarves and the men of Dale, they would have been able to join up with Sauron's forces from Dol Guldur, which had uh, been busy over in Mirkwood. Yeah, they had actively been attacking Lothlorien as well. Mirkwood and Lothlorien. Yeah, Lothlorien, yeah. But if those, it would have been a hammer anvil situation. Right. W- wouldn't have been good. Yeah, this also would have enabled Mordor's armies to flank Gondor and Rohan from the north and from the rear. So it, it could have been bad on many fronts. Gandalf himself actually commented that if the Battle of Dale had not been, or if the Battle of Dale had been lost, the forces of the West would have been crushed, regardless of the victory at the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Right. Yeah. So this was I, that's why I wanted to start lesser known's battles with this one because this one was so important. Yeah. So we'll kind of uh, end talking about the Battle of Dale with a nice excerpt here about it. I grieved at the fall of Thorin, said Gandalf, and now we hear that Dane has fallen, fighting in Dale again even while we fought here. I should call that a heavy loss, if it was not a wonder rather that in his great age 
he could still wield his axe as mightily as they say that he did, standing over the body of King Bran before the gate of Erebor until the darkness fell. Yet things might have gone far otherwise and far worse. When you think of the great battle of Pelennor, do not forget the battles in Dale and the valor of Durin's folk. Think of what might have been. Dragonfire and savage swords in Eriador. Night in Rivendell. There might be no queen in Gondor. We might now hope to return from the victory here only to ruin and ash. But that has been averted because I met Thorn Oakenshield one evening on the edge of spring in Bree. A chance meeting, as we say in Middle-earth. That all did kind of fall together, didn't it? Yeah, had it not been for the quest of Erebor, they wouldn't have had an established, an established kingdom, kingdom out in Dale and Erebor. It would have been a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> the dragon would have, would have dragon joined Sauron. Oh, man, that would have been terrible. Yeah, that's why he says dragon fire and uh, savage swords and things. Cause, uh, Damn, that sucks. <laughs> right, it could have been way worse. Yeah, when you now when you, you look at some of these other battles, you think back to Pelennor Fields, you're like, man... Like, you thought they were narrowly holding it together. It was even more... They had the ideal circumstance. Yeah, it was to, even to more battle, narrow yeah. of a win than you realized. Yeah. Um, so with that, we think it's a good time to jump into the Battle of Mirkwood because this was also going on at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is also known as the Battle Under the Trees. So let's go back to March 15th, TA3019. The realm of Thanduril, Thranduril was invaded by the orcs of Dol Guldur. Fuckers. Uh, however, the majority of these forces uh, were sent to Lothlorien. Yeah, so the the main host went to Lothlorien, and the remaining forces were supposed to attack the Woodland Realm with the help of some Easterlings. But those Easterlings were fucking busy! <laughs> That's right. Those Easterlings never came. You know why? Because they were fucking stuck back in Dale. Trying to get some stubborn-ass dwarves out of a mountain. Yeah, they got stuck over there with the dwarves and men of Dale, so uh, they never got their backup. Uh-huh. So that being the case, Thranduil himself led an assault on these lesser forces, and there was a long battle from which came, quote-unquote, great ruin and fire among the woods of Greenwood the Great. Which, this is this is kind of one of those things, too, Like, because I always wondered when I was a kid, when I'd first read The Lord of the Rings slash had seen the movies, why none of the other free people were getting involved Right, because we had spent the first of third age the clash. first like whole movie or two meeting all these people. Yeah, but they totally because yeah, it was it almost seemed like what the elves and dwarves just left these guys to fend for themselves. Right, yeah. Fuck no, they guys. were f- actively fighting. You got elves fighting in Mirkwood and Lothlorien, yeah. and you've got uh, dwarves and men of the north fighting in Dale all at the same time, which to me is insane. You wouldn't show that in the movie because that's so important. That because I mean in the movie they drive home that Sauron's point was to destroy men. Right. Yeah. Well, and then talk about two bonus battles that you can just cut to on the same right, fucking just day. Just showing how much <laughs> yeah. he is really trying to destroy men. But uh, maybe it would have been too much for an audience to focus yeah. on. Uh, it was only a $94 million budget, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, being that this is a lesser-known battle, you might not hear much about it, but there are actually a couple of references to this happening uh, during The Return of the King. But everywhere Frodo looked, he saw the signs of war. Under the boughs of Mirkwood, there was a deadly strife of elves, men, and fell beasts. Yeah, so that was a quick excerpt from uh, The Breaking of the Fellowship, from The Fellowship of the Ring. We got another excerpt here. Now, why did not we wish for some of our own kinsfolk, Legolas? Legolas stood before the gate and turned his bright eyes away north and east, and his far face was troubled. I do not think that any would come, he answered. They have no need to ride to war. War already marches on their own lands. He's essentially saying, like, yeah, they're going to get it, too. Don't worry. Don't wait. Like, Yeah, it's almost like a little hint, like he's used his far sight to see that something is up back home. Yeah. Yeah, but ultimately, after a long battle under the trees, the orcs were defeated on both fronts on the same day, which is pretty badass. So we'll kind of end the Battle of Mirkwood off with a cool excerpt here. In the north, also, there had been war and evil. The realm of Thranduil was invaded, and there was long battle under the trees and a great ruin of fire. But in the end, Thranduil had won the victory. And on the day of the new year of the elves, Celeborn and Thranduil met in the midst of the forest, and they renamed Mirkwood Aaron Laskalin, the Wood of Green Leaves. Thranduil took all the northern regions as far as the mountains that rise in the forest for his realm, 
and Celeborn took the southern wood below the narrows and named it East Lorien. All the wide forest between was given to the Bjornings and the Woodmans. But after the passing of Galadriel in a few years, Celeborn grew weary of this realm and went to Imladris to dwell with the sons of Elrond. In the Greenwood, the Sylvan Elves remained untroubled, but in Lorien there lingered sadly only a few of its former people, and there was no longer light or song in Caras Galadron. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. There's a lot of information in that excerpt that I did not know. Yeah, same here. So this battle was ultimately very important because afterwards they, uh, I guess they split up their realms. It changed. They, yeah, they redo the 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 borders of their kingdoms and stuff. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty cool. Yeah, another very important lesser known battle. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and the next couple battles we're going to talk about are actually uh, dwarven-related battles. So, you know, I'm going to... I was very excited to include these. Oh, yeah, we had to. Don't worry, there's some Dune stuff later. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I wonder how... Uh, how uh, how skewed our podcast is because I like the Dunedain and you like the dwarves. Like yeah, everyone's like, where are the elves? Yeah, did anybody, did we, can we talk about the elves today, guys? <laughs> so the first battle that we're going to talk about in relation to dwarves, it's it's not so much a specific battle as it is an overall war, and it's probably one of the most badass wars you never knew about. Yeah, yeah. And this is called the War of the Dwarves and Dragons. Yeah, what other race has had a straight-out war... Straight-out beef with the dragons. ...with dragons <laughs> and been able to fight them, yeah. the dwarves. So this was a conflict between Durin's folk and the dragons of the Grey Mountains in 3rd Age 2570 to around 3rd Age 2589. Yeah, so following the defeat of Morgoth in the War of Wrath, that's the end of the First Age... There were still some dragons left in Middle-earth. You know, most of them got killed out in the war, but there were some. Uh, there was one online source we found that said that there were only specifically two dragons that survived. And that would have had to have been Smog and Scatha, right? No, they, they came, those two came further down the line. Oh. Because... Uh, oh, then the initial War of Wrath, it's saying. Yeah, oh, right after the War of Wrath, all the dragons were killed off, except for possibly two, but very few. But these dragons basically hightailed it out of there, and they ended up residing in the Ford Waith, which is the northern wastes. So far north, you know, there's nothing up there. And uh, so ever since then, they, for about 6,000 years, these dragons just hung out up there, multiplied, and became strong. So they went from very few to, like, an entire new brood yeah. of dragons. The Ford Waith is known as the land of dragon sex. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's like, if you hear on the winds, you can hear the dragons mating. God, what does that sound like? <laughs> so after 6,000 years of mating, <laughs> in the year 2570 of the Third Age, the dragons made war upon the dwarves of the Grey Mountains, sacking and plundering all of their halls. The dwarves held out for around 20 years, but in finally in 2589 of the Third Age, the dragons attacked the hall of the halls of King Dane the First. Yes, King Dane had acquired so much treasure it actually got around. The word got out to the dragons. Word got they, out. Yeah, apparently the Grey Mountains were supposed to be particularly rich with oh yeah treasures and such. So. Yeah, because they weren't. Uh, I was re just reading recently because uh, they were uh, relatively unmined and stuff at that right, yeah. during that era. Yeah, so untouched. Dwarves come get all this treasure. Dragons are like, that's mine. So King Dane and his second son Fror are ultimately killed outside the doors of their keep by a cold drake. And there's a, a lot of speculation about what the term cold drake means. Yeah. Cold so, drake, is that in reference to Canadian rapper Drake? Because he's from <laughs> Canada. He's cold. It's cold up he's there. He's cold. Yeah, some people think, you know, it's just because it was a dragon that lived in the cold. And then some people are like, no, maybe it had, you know, ice breath, you know, a cold drake. What's the difference between that and a regular drake? We don't really know. But they exist and they are something. Yeah, uh, we don't really know. I mean, the the last real uh, lore we had of, on this subject was probably the show Drake and Josh, right? <laughs> I actually never watched Drake and Josh. It's a fun don't, show. Don't, don't I, judge me. I thought it was funny. Eh. Yeah, so now 
the king of the dwarves in the Grey Mountains has died. So has his second son. So following the death of their king, most of Durin's folk abandoned the Grey Mountains completely and gave it to the dragons. And that's how the dragons got some of their some of their gold because there's some famous dragon hordes in the future. Like I think someone in the Aethid, Scatha. Scatha the Worm. Yeah, yeah. Scatha the Worm. I'm pretty sure Scatha's um, hoard of gold comes from this. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so after all of this goes on and the war with the dragons is over, Gandalf describes the Grey Mountains as, quote, simply stiff with goblins, hobgoblins, and orcs of the worst description. So it's just a pretty shitty place now. Yeah, which is weird because they go through like the foot of the Grey Mountains on their way back after the Hobbit. Oh, really? Yeah, because they go around. Oh, they go north around. Yeah, and then they say that there's like adve- they had adventures, and we're not going to talk about them here. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh man, I won't, well, yeah, the, I sh- you'd probably have some adventures if you went around this place. It sounds like a pretty crazy place to go. Yeah. Yeah, so after the war, the dwarves of Middle-earth managed to live in peace for a couple of centuries. That is, until the coming of Smog the Golden in the year 2770. So, I mean, even though the war with the dragons is over, I mean, there's still these ongoing conflicts with the dragons coming down to steal the dwarves' gold. Still beef there. Yeah, because, I mean, Smog heard about the wealth of Erebor, and he flies down, you know, quote-unquote like a hurricane, sacks that shit, and then he, you know, he lives there until the quest for Erebor comes around. We should do uh, as our next parody song. Have you seen, heard the song The Hurricane by Bob Dylan? Yes. Yeah, we should do that just about smog. About smog. <laughs> yeah, the, the dwarves, man, they have more history with dragons than I think anyone else. And that might be one of the reasons why I like them so much. Why? Because you're a capitalist pig? Is that why? <laughs> because I like dragons? <laughs> no, I thought you said you like them because they, like tre- they have a bunch of treasure. I thought that's what you said. No, because they have a lot of history with oh, dragons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like them because they I, have a lot of treasure. I like all the characters that have the most money. I really like the dragons because yeah. they just have all the treasure, you know. Yeah, who's really awesome? Jeff Bezos. That guy is just, he has so much money. God, he's awesome. You know who's my favorite Lord of the Rings character? Probably Scath of the Dragon because <laughs> he's so fucking rich. He's so cool. He's rich as hell. What did, we read that article that one time that an economist wrote that like put um, the treasure of smog in like the like fifty billion dollar range or something really? like that, yeah, just a stupid amount of wealth. Take into account inflation. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It was supposed to be outrageous. I mean, especially considering the Arkenstone was in the Erebor batch, you know. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to find that article and post it when we post this episode. I can't remember. It's 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 a stupid amount of it's money. It's a though. hilarious amount. It's of a money. country's GDP of money. <laughs> yeah. So to end off the subject of the War of Dwarves and Dragons, we've got a excerpt here for you. But Thorin won, took the Arkenstone, and went into the far north to the Grey Mountains, where most of Durin's folk were now gathering, for those mountains were rich and little explored. But there were dragons in the waste beyond, and after many years, they became strong again and multiplied, and they made war on the dwarves and plundered their works. At last, Dane won, together with Thor, his son, were slain at the doors of his hall by a great cold drake. The dwarves hid themselves in deep places, guarding their hordes, but when evil began to stir and the dragons reappeared, one by one their ancient treasures were all plundered and they became a wandering people. Yep, that's what happens. You lose all your money, man. Yeah, so yeah, it it is true. After the war of the dwarves and the dragons is pretty much when all of the dwarven colonies become a wandering folk at least in the part of middle earth that we're familiar with and let's yeah let's uh let's get on to some more dwarf shit man <laughs> this is uh, a battle that i can never pronounce yeah so the next dwarf battle we're going to talk about is the battle of azanolbazar yeah 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 and this one is actually really cool because there is a lot of information about it. Yeah, they show this in the Hobbit film. They do, and that's one of the scenes that I don't mind watching because it is pretty bad. It's cool. It's a yeah, cool ass scene. That's closer to yeah. what I would have imagined a dwarven fighting to yeah. be like. More not not like what the main characters do in yeah. the movie. Yeah, yeah. And then that, that high frame rate it looks really good. Yeah, real good. So the Battle of Azanolbazar. So the Battle of Azanolbazar takes place during a a different war that the dwarves have. And this is the War of the Dwarves and Orcs. This begins in the year 2790 of the Third Age. So this happens when uh, Thror, who had been the king of the Lonely Mountain, attempted to re- he uh, attempted to reclaim Moria, but was slain by orcs, and his body was mutilated by Azog the Defiler. Yeah, so keep in mind, Moria at this point in time is emptied because of the Balrog, and so there's like a bunch of orcs and shit living in there. Mm-hmm. He wanted it back. 
Then, as an insult, Asog actually offers a small bag of money for their losses. This is that like a sarcastic guild kind of thing that exactly. he does. Exactly. Yeah yeah. 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 He's like, yeah, here's a little something for your loss. Yeah. Not Fuck worth you. much. Yeah. So this obviously infuriated the dwarves and rallied them to war. And when we say the dwarves, we're not just talking Durin's folk. Well, from the year 2790 to 2793, the Longbeards gathered an army calling on all other six houses of the dwarves for all-out war. Because, I mean, all seven houses of the dwarves hate orcs. Yeah, this is now a blood feud. But, yeah, now that <laughs> now that one of the orcs has killed one of the leaders of their houses, they're like, all right. They're yeah. not, yeah, they're not having it anymore. So in the year 2793, the dwarven host departed for war. Little is actually known about the six-year-long war, but it is known that most of it was fought in the great mines and tunnels of the Misty Mountains where the dwarves excelled in combat. Yeah, they love that underground shit. I just sort of think of like the movie The Descent when I think of like <laughs> dwarf combat. Like yeah. just, yeah, barely lit, fucking struggling, screeching, ugh, stabbing, scratching they in got the that, dark. They got that dark sight perk, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it was when we were playing Pathfinder the other day. Joel's character is like, vision I'm a dwarf. Something? I can see in the dark. We're, we're all like, we're all half elves and shit. We can see in the dark. And you're like, oh. Oh. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. Yeah. Yeah, you guys, that's right. I chose to be a dwarf in d Oh, my God. You guys, it's so it's such a pain in the ass. Don't judge me. Joel's the... No, it's not the dwarf. I don't have the problem with the dwarf shit. Is he's the only one in the group that decided to do a law... Uh, what are you, neutral good or something? Uh, lawful neutral. Lawful neutral. Yeah, he's a lawful character, you guys. Oh, fuck me, I guess. The other day, we were going to steal a boat, and he was like, I'm going to leave some of our, uh, our health potion for them. And I was like, you will it not. Was, it was mine. I could have left it for him. <laughs> I was like, I'll just steal it after you leave it. Fine. Man, I see there's some obvious... Uh, Chaotic neutral, dog. There's some obvious uh, racism towards dwarves going no, on. No, it's, uh, it's towards your weird moral lawful code. Oh, sure, yeah. That's what it is. We're going to throw this up as a Patreon bit where I just bitch at Joel about his Pathfinder character. <laughs> All right. So during the War of the Dwarves and Orcs, the dwarves successfully assailed and sacked every orc hold they could find from Mount Gundabad in the north to the Gladden in the south. Yeah, this is essentially that point when you've conquered enough of the side missions in Skyrim where you have nothing else to do but to just go through every cave and clear them all. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the, exactly what they did. Yeah, that's what the dwarves did. So the war came to a climax in 2799 when the final battle was fought in the Demeril Dale below the East Gate of Moria. And this is called the Battle of Azanulbazar, also called the Battle of Nanduhirion. That'd be the Elvish word for it? Yes. Yeah, that's the Sindarin word for it. And this is a notoriously, notoriously bloody battle. The uh, the first attack uh, by the dwarves was thrown back with heavy losses, and Thrain was driven into the woods near into thick woods nearby. Yeah, their Thrain's son Freren died, and so did uh, Thrain's kinsman Fundin, who is Balin's father, and uh, many other dwarves besides. And both Thrain and his son Thorin were wounded. Yeah, and uh, just so everyone's clear, this is the Thrain that you think it is, and this is Thorin Oakenshield that we're talking about. Right, but we don't call him Oakenshield until after this. Actually. Just a second here, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, until just a second here. So, uh, so elsewhere, the battle is raging on back and forth until at last, dwarven reinforcements arrive from the Iron Hills. And these guys are led by Nain, who is son of Gror, the lord of the Iron Hills. Yeah, because Iron Hills doesn't have kings. And these dwarves were rested and fresh to the field, raring and ready to go. Fully armed and filthy. Fully armed and filthy. Yeah, they were also, you know, dwarven warriors, so they they wore dwarven mail. They said they were mailed soldiers. Oh, yeah. And dwarven mail is known to be the best mail that exists. Yeah, armor, yeah, in general, yeah, dwarves are the best at that shit. Mm-hmm. That's why they're the ones that made, like, the Mithril mail mm-hmm. uh, shirt. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just the best with that kind of stuff. And so, anyway, these reinforcements come in, and the dwarves drive the orcs all the way back to the eastern gate of Moria the whole time, crying, Azog, Azog, because they are just infuriated. Yeah, and at the gate, Nain yelled inside, quote, Azog, if you are in, come out, or is the play in the valley too rough? Ooh, Buzzy, get out of here. Yeah, this reminds me of like when fucking Fingolfin tries to uh, yeah, fight Morgoth. <laughs> yeah. Come on out. So Azog and Azog comes. 
Azog appears, but he also appears with his special guard of fighters. And Azog himself and his guards are all described as, uh, quote, great orcs with huge ironclad heads, and uh, yet they are very agile and strong. So these guys are motherfuckers. Yeah, dude. These aren't your run-of-the-mill type orcs. So this ensuing fight, uh, in this ensuing fight, Azog kills Nain and then picks up Nain's head and gives a great yell of triumph. And it is said that the cry died in his throat as he saw the dwarves become enraged and began slaughtering Azog's host. Could you? I could just imagine that. Ha 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 ha. And then you turn around and just see like, Baruch Azad, Azad, I'm away. Baruch Azad, Baruch Azad. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was some of the descriptions of this fight in the appendix were really cool. I couldn't include all the excerpts I wanted to. But yeah, this part in the appendix is dope. <laughs> yeah, this at this part it says that like he looked and yeah basically they were just killing everybody and uh, his orcs that were left were either scattering or dying like there was no in between they were either running for their lives or dying viciously as azog turned to run back to the gate a dwarf with a red axe leapt up the stairs and killed azog cutting off his head and who the fuck was that joel it was dane to iron foot of the iron hills and this is an impressive feat for dane considering he was only 32 fucking years old at the time that is really young for a dwarf. Yeah, that would be like, you know, fucking a 16-year-old kid just comes up and yeah, cuts the, the leader of his head off. Yeah, it was a hell of a feat and it was renowned. And uh yeah, also during this this part of the battles also when uh, Thorin gets his surname Oakenshield. Right, because cause that uh, when they're pushed back into the woods, he just grabs a piece of wood, right, and uses it as a shield. Isn't that why they call him that? Yeah, he, yeah, he uses a piece of wood as a shield when he's fighting. That's yeah. what he hit. So that part in the movie is legit. That is how he gets yeah. the name Oakenshield. I, I kind of honestly thought it was pretty cool that he still used that as a shield like, in the movie. Yeah. Like, that was pretty cool. Yeah, when cool. they brought it back to that, I thought that was a fun tie around. That was cool. I was okay with it. So, after the death of Azog the Defiler, the dwarves finally gained victory and ended the War of the Dwarves and Orcs. So endeth the War of the Dwarves and Orcs. Yeah, so ultimately, the, so this battle of Azanobazar uh, ended the war, and this war was actually pretty fucking nuts. So, the numbers are this. So, about 10,000 orcs were killed in that battle alone, in the Dimrill Dale. And at least that many were killed throughout the previous six years of war. We have no fucking clue exactly how many orcs they cleared out of the mountains. Yeah. But but as a result of such losses, the orcs of the Misty Mountains virtually disappeared as a threat to Iriador and the Wilderland. Yeah, they really cleaned house. Yeah, man. They really got them out of there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so that really wrapped everything up with the orcs. But uh, fun fact, after all of that, you might be thinking about, yeah, you know, they finally got there. They finally got Moria back. Well, no, the dwarves did not ultimately retake Moria after this. Yeah, after the battle, uh, Thrain wanted to reclaim the city, but the other dwarves uh, who were not of Durin's folk, they refused. Yeah, they basically said the city was not of their father's house. Um, they they said that they honored Thor's memory by fighting in the war, but they thought that was enough. They're like, we don't have to go and like retake this. Well, I mean, it's gonna be, yeah, it's gonna be years. Kazadum is huge, right? Because you got to clear out all the orcs that are in there. Plus, you're gonna have to deal with a Balrog. Balrog so, like, yeah. they were they just finished this war and they're like, nah, man, sorry. Which Dane kind of warned about. He was like, yo, we also yeah. got that that nameless fear that's lurking in there. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, this is also where Dane gives his uh, he gives a little prophecy about how he like saw visions through the gate of the Balrog still there, and he gives a warning to uh, Thrain saying, you know, hey, we don't want to go in there. Yeah, Balrog's still there. But yeah, so that's uh, most of everything we've got on Azanol Bazaar. And we'll end this subject off with an excerpt here as well. At last, all the orcs that fled before them were gathered in Moria, and the dwarf host in pursuit came to Enzanulzabar. When the dwarves saw the gate of their ancient mansions upon the hill's side, they sent up a great shout like thunder in the valley. But a great host of foes was arrayed on the slopes above them, and out of the gates poured a multitude of orcs that had been held back by Azog for the last need. At first fortune was against the dwarves, for it was a dark day of winter without the sun, and the orcs did not waver, and they outnumbered their enemies, and had the higher ground. So began the Battle of Enzanulzabar, or Nanduhirion in the, Engli- in the elvish tongue. 
at the memory of which the orcs still shudder and the dwarves weep. When at last the battle was won, the dwarves that were left gathered in Anzanulzabar. They took the head of Azog and thrust into its mouth the purse of small money, and they set it on a stake. But no feast nor song was there that night, for their dead were beyond the count of grief. Barely half of their number, it is said, could still stand or had hope of healing. That's rough. That's quite a toll. That's, yeah. Yeah. So that's some of the uh, the lesser-known dwarf battles, and there are more. Yeah, I'm those. sure there are more. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch on some in the future. But now let's dive into some of the lesser-known Dunedain battles. Let's get in some Dunedainery. <laughs> Dunedainery. So the uh, first uh, battle we wanted to talk about in regards to the Dunedain is the Kinstrife, which isn't so much of a battle as it is just an all-out civil war. A series, of, yeah, of civil war-type conflicts. Mm-hmm. So the Kinstrife was ultimately a uh, disastrous civil war in Gondor from the years 1432 to 1447. The king of Gondor at this time was King Valakar, but King's, King Valakar's wife and son were Gondorian. Uh, or they, they were not Gondorian, excuse me. They came from the Northmen of Rovanian. Yeah, so they weren't... Uh, not Dunedain. Not Dunedain. So after Valakar died, his son Eldakar took the throne, and this caused quite a bit of outrage. <laughs> yeah, several members, the people just weren't okay in Gondor with having, they they talked about as like lesser blood. Yeah, this is like a... In their rulers. Yeah. yeah, so several members of the House of Anarion actually came forward to try to claim the crown, and a full-scale civil war broke out in 1432. It sure did, and it was called the Kinstrife, and it lasted 15 friggin' years. The uh, the rebel with the largest following was Casimir the Usurper, the captain of ships, who attacked and captured Osgiliath, who was the capital at that time, um, by river. Because he was hanging out down in, like, Umbar or something, wasn't he? Right, yeah, yeah. And uh, luckily, Eldakar managed to escape Osgiliath to his homeland in Rovania, so he was not killed. But Osgiliath was set on fire, and his elder son was captured and executed. Ugh. Yeah, things got pretty bloody. Castamir, he proved to be a pretty shitty ruler, um, and he earned the hatred of the inner provinces. Yeah, pretty quickly. And uh, so meanwhile, back in Rovania, an Eldakar is still there, and he acquired actually a great following of men up there, and after several years, he returned with his Northmen allies and attacked Castamir and killed him and defeated his army. Yeah, and Castamir's sons, they hightailed it back to Umbar, and they declared their own independence. Yeah, and this is when Umbar really becomes that uh, haven of, of black Numenorians that we know about in mm-hmm. the Third Age and Lord of the Rings and such. And uh, so when they flee down to Umbar, that's more or less the end of the Kinstrife, the war. But in the year 1634, descendants of Castamir, the usurper, organize a devastating raid on the haven of Pelagir and kill the king of the time, uh, King Menardil, who was visiting. Oh no, Menardil. Right, yeah. So even though the Kinstrife has been over for almost... 200 years, you know, the... The, the repercussions of it. Yeah. Still... Still going on, you know. Was... I don't know if I... I don't know. I just thought of this. Wasn't... When Thorngil killed the leader of Umbar... Do you remember that? When he ran with the... When Aragorn was Thorngil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that one of the descendants of Castamir? I would assume so. Yeah. I think they mentioned it's one of the descendants of Castamir. Okay. Which is weird because that would be like a relative of his. Yeah, it would. Well, yeah, yeah it'd be one of the usurpers. Yeah from the usurper family. Yeah, so we'll end off the subject of the kinsling here with a excerpt. The high men of Gondor already looked askance at the Northmen among them, and it was a thing unheard of before that their heir of the crown, or any son of the king, should wed one of lesser and alien race. There was already rebellion in the southern provinces when King Valakar grew old. His queen had been a fair and noble lady, but short-lived according to the fate of lesser men, and the Dunedain feared that her descendants would prove the same and fall from their majesty of the kings of men. Also, they were unwilling to accept as lord her son, who was named one of his mother's people. Therefore, when Eldakar succeeded his father, there was a war in Gondor, but Eldakar did not prove easy to thrust from his heritage. To the lineage of Gondor he added the fearless spirit of the Northmen, When the confederates led by descendants of the kings rose against him, he opposed them to the end of his strength. 
just a little tidbit on the kin strife here. So people kind of give Tolkien a little bit of shit for him putting so much emphasis on bloodlines and purity and stuff like that. Yeah. I think this is kind of Tolkien's way of this story. It's kind of like him saying, like, this is the kind of shit that happens when you put too much stake in that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. And it ultimately weakens your society when you do that. Right, yeah. Because, like, this is the kind of shit that happens. Yeah, his story about, you know, the shit that can come from people trying to stick so closely to high races and bloodlines and things. And it straight up says that the blood of the men of the Northmen strengthened Gondor. Yeah. 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 Yeah, don't be racist, guys. Yeah, don't be racist. A lot of people say, yeah, because Tolkien does, uh, you know, he does lay a lot of uh, weight on the bloodline stuff. But this story, in my opinion, is him saying, like, yo, let's not get too obsessed with that kind of stuff. So some more Dunedain stuff. Let's get into some Dunedain stuff. Yeah, what's the next battle we got coming up here? We got the Battle of Kyr Andros. And Kyr Andros is a large island in the Anduin River, 40 miles north of Asgiliath. And it's got it got its name, which means the ship of the long foam, because it resembled a ship. Yeah, apparently the way the river like breaks on the northern edge of the island looks just like a ship like sailing yeah. through the sea. We were talking about uh, Raspberry Island is kind of like that. Yeah. It looks like a ship. It's pretty cool. Raspberry Island's an uh, island of the Mississippi River in the middle of downtown St. Paul. Mighty Mississippi. Yeah, so Carandros was very important to Gondor during the war with Mordor. In order to prevent the enemy from crossing the river and entering into uh, Enorian, that was basically the region just north of Gondor. So it was basically a good way to keep them from crossing the river and attacking them from the north. Right, yeah. Because Enorian's that, that like inner province of, uh, of Gondor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. After the Battle of Pelennor Fields ended on March 15th, uh, TA 3019, about 6,000 of Sauron's orcs and men retreated to the island and held it for days. Yeah, on March 23rd, uh, during Aragorn's March on the Black Gates, he sent 1,000 scared young men from Rohand and Lossarnak from his main host to go retake the island of Carandros. Yeah, because this is like when they're marching to their inevitable doom. Right. They get to that crossroads and like some of them, they, they kind of like, it's it's not so much them pussing out either. It's more like the other soldiers kind of look at them and they're like, these are just children. Like, yeah. why? Like, I don't blame them for not wanting to go die. Right. Because yeah. like right before this is when they have, what is it called? The last debate? Yeah, where they decide that they're all going to march to yeah, their Yeah, where they basically yeah. <laughs> decide on a suicide mission. So, like, everyone's going into this thinking it's a suicide mission. <laughs> yeah, so these men were terrified of the idea of this suicide mission. But uh, King Aragorn, well, he's not king yet, but uh, Aragorn gave them leave to instead go retake the island. And uh, not much is known about the battle of retaking the island, but it is known that it was a success. Because uh, as Frodo observes as he returns from his quest, uh, he, he observes that the island's docks are filled with Gondorian ships again. So right, right. we know it was a success, but there isn't a lot of detail on the battle. Yeah. There are actually like real ships there instead of like floating pieces of shit. That, yeah, like, like shitty dinghies, yeah. oily like I imagine and they probably make boats out of their own poop. That's you think I'm so? Imagining. Like dry it? Why not? Like, yeah, like pycrete, but made of poop. Interesting. Poopcrete. Poopcrete. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something they could mold with their hands. I was wondering where they'd get the wood, because there isn't really any wood in Mordor for ships, so... No, that much grows there. They just use poop. <laughs> they just use poop. They, like, bake it in the fucking volcano. They make, like, orc poop <laughs> uh, uh, pottery. That'd be super funny That if, like, orcs are like, yeah, orcs are terrible, but they make amazing pottery out of their own shit, and I don't know... <laughs> It's super durable. It's super durable, and uh, yeah, it just makes everything taste better. <laughs> it turns out it's actually on par with, like, Mithril. Yeah, it's some, like, dwarf make shit. So we'll, uh, we'll end off the subject of the Battle of Carandros with a nice excerpt about it. Aragorn looked at them, and there was pity in his eyes rather than wrath. For these were young men from Rohan, from Westfold, far away, or husbandmen from Lassanark. And to them Mordor had been from childhood a name of evil and yet unreal, a legend that had no part in their simple life. And now they walked like men in a hideous dream made true, and they understood not this war, nor why fate should lead them to such a pass. Go, said Aragorn, but keep what honor you may and do not run. And there is a task to which you may attempt, and so be not wholly shamed. Take your way southwest till you come to Kyr Andros. And if that is still held by enemies as I think, then retake it, if you can. 
and hold it to the last in defense of Gondor and Rohan. Then some being shamed by his mercy overcame their fear and went on, and the others took new hope, hearing of a manful deed with their measure that they could turn to, and they departed. All right, our next battle, also Dunedine. Yeah, this one's fun because this gets into the Northern Kingdom, which I feel like is uh, a lesser-known subject. And we're talking about the Battle of Fornost. Yeah, yeah. And this is uh, during uh, really the tail end of the decline of the North Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And this is when Arnor had been split by uh, civil war. Not, uh, yeah, I guess you could say civil war. It was split into three smaller kingdoms, uh, Cardolan, Rudaur, and Arthedane. The capital city of Arthedain was Fornost. And Arthedain basically is true, Arnor. That is, because what happened, in a nutshell, guys, <laughs> what happened was uh, a king's three sons fought over the, the the realm of Arnor when he died, and their oldest son claimed the whole kingdom, but only ultimately was able to control Arthedain. So the real line of kings is through that oldest one. Gotcha. The Arthedain. So during the wars with Angmar, which began in 1409, the kingdom of Arthedain was basically the last remnant of the kingdom of Gondor. Like everything else had more or less fallen to yeah. Angmar. Yeah, the Great Plague uh, really uh, helped with that. Oh yeah, thinned out their numbers. Yeah. In uh, 1974, Third Age, the kingdom of Arthedain was destroyed, and the last realm of the northern Dunedain was no more. Yeah, the armies of Angmar and its allies overran the northern lands, destroying the capital of Fornost. And uh, after the fall of Arthedain, King Arvidui, the last king of Arnor, he fled north to the ice bay of Forakel, and he did it kind of desperately. He, you know, it was his kingdom just fell. And yeah, I think he left his kid uh, Aranurth and Rivendell and left. Yeah, and it seemed at this time that the Witch King's victory was complete. He had completely destroyed the Northern Kingdom. Now, down to the south, hearing of this attack, Gondor tried to send aid to the Northern Kingdom. And then we get uh, this guy. Yeah, if we ever if we ever do an Unsung Heroes battle uh, episode, this guy's going to be in it. This is Prince Aranur. He's awesome. Oh, yeah. So Prince Aranur of Gondor leads a host of men down the Anduin, and they sail up to the aid of the Northern Kingdom, not really knowing it has already been completely destroyed because they're not using the Palantiri at this time. Right, yeah. Yeah, at this time, things are falling apart, so they're not using those Palantiri for communication. So they didn't realize that uh, Arvidui had already dipped out. He actually took two of those with him. Oh, really? Yeah. He nice. took the, the Anumina stone and the the one from Amatul. I wonder if those sunk in his ship. They did. They're at the bottom of the ocean. Damn, that's crazy. Yep. But after arriving and seeing that he was too late, Prince Arianor was pissed off. He was furious. Furious. And he joined the, the elves of Lindon um, and the remnant of the northern Dudenane, and they marched east to avenge the loss of Fornost. And they're pissed. Like, when we say they're pissed, like, they're quite wrathful. <laughs> yeah, they had no idea. Like, they were coming to come help their sister kingdom, and then they yeah. get there and they realize... It's already gone. Everybody's, it's not only, yeah, it's everybody's not, dead, scattered. Not yeah. only are they losing, but they have already lost, and everyone's dead and gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's horrible. And Prince Arinor, yeah, he meets up with uh, with the elves of Lindon, uh, led by... Near, 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 Glorfindel. Glorfindel. Yeah. So... They march east, and they meet the Witch King's armies, not at Fornost itself, but on the plains just westward towards Lake Evendim. And aided by Arinor's military skill and a force sent up on Rivendell led by Glorfindel, <laughs> the armies of the Dunedain and the elves utterly defeat Angmar's armies. Oh, and the, yeah, they just clean them up. Oh, yeah. And after a long chase, the Witch King flees into the darkness of night and escapes. And uh, at this point, this is when Aranur, he wants to go pursue the Witch King. He wants to like, run off into the darkness. And <laughs> Yeah, he's like, let's go. Let's go after this prick. Yeah, but Glorfindel, this is when Glorfindel stops him and makes his famous prophecy where he says, quote, not by the hand of man shall he fall, as later proves true during the War of the Ring. Yeah. Do we all remember what happens to Aranur? Isn't that when he goes, he goes to... Uh, Dog, or uh, he goes to Minas Ithil for a challenge. Yeah, he never comes out. Yeah, he's the last childless king of Gondor. Yeah, the last of the line of Anarian. But he's yeah, he's known for his temper, and he doesn't like uh, the Witch King. And he, he hates knows that. The Witch king. And the Witch King, remember, he sends those messengers making fun of him. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's like, yeah, hey, why don't you come on. down to Minas Morgul? You know, have a, have have mano mano. Come fuck with us. Nope, not a good idea. 
Yeah, it was uh, yeah right after actually the the battle was all over and the witch king fled. Uh, it was said that one night during the camp, the witch king just appeared on a horse and charged Aranur just to try to fucking get him. And Aranur like dodges out of the way and he like runs off into the night laughing. <laughs> like fuck that dude. Yeah, yeah, he's all about trolling Aranur, and yeah, yeah, it ultimately works in the end. Aranur must have been one of those people that was really funny to make mad. Yeah, one it's of those probably, people. Yeah. It was probably like when Dom rages at games. Oh my god, our friend Dom is uh, yeah. one of the funniest mad people of all time. Our friend Dominic, he's one of the the our friends we love to play games with, but sometimes he's a bit of a, a rager. Dude, Dom's been on the show. Yeah. That's right, Dom's been on the show way back in season one. Oh, episode, that was uh, a while back, wasn't it? Yeah, Tolkien video games. But yeah, he, uh, yeah, he rages pretty hard. <laughs> we love you, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we can, uh, we're going to end the uh, Battle of Fornost here with a nice excerpt. Then Círdan summoned all who would come to him from Lindon or Arnor, and when all was ready, the host crossed the loon and marched north to challenge the Witch King of Angmar. He was now dwelling, it is said, in Fornost, which he had filled with evil folk, usurping the house and rule of the kings. In his pride, he did not await the onset of his enemies and his stronghold, but instead went out to meet them, thinking to sweep them, as others before, into the loon. But the host of the west came down on him out of the hills of Evendim, and there was great battle on the plain between Nanuel and the North Downs. The forces of Angmar were already giving way and retreating towards Fornost when the main body of horsemen that had passed round the hills came down from the north and scattered them in a great rout. Then the witch-king, with all that he could gather from wreck, fled northwards, seeking his own land of Angmar. But before he could gain the shelter of Khandum, the cavalry of Gondor overtook him with Aranur riding at their head. At the same time... A force under Glorfindel the Elf Lord came up out of Rivendell. Then so utterly was Angmar defeated that not a man nor an orc of that realm remained west of the mountains. Yeah, they really took a hammer to that situation. Cleaned it out. Yeah, which is funny because then the Dunedain kind of take over at maintaining that that peace that they had uh, so utterly right, this <laughs> laid when, down. Yeah, because this is when the Northern uh, Rangers kind of take subtly take over, keeping up the peace. Right. Right, because uh, Irvidwe, don't quote me on this, dies in 1979. Okay. And then Aranarth takes over. I believe Aranarth was hiding in Rivendell, and he's the first this. chieftain, right? He is the first chieftain of the Dunedain. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, uh, I guess, when the uh, Dunad- the Northern Dunedine Rangers end up coming about. Yeah, and the whole battle of Fornos and Fall of the Northern King totally sets up the story of the Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah, like because the, the whole book that we know takes place in the Shire, which is in the Old North Kingdom. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like everything that we know, Bree, all this shit, like all that's in the North Kingdom. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a good thing to know. Yeah, it's a good subject to look over because it is really important in regards to the War of the Rings stuff. Yeah, and these are all Aragorn's ancestors, you know, some super badass dudes. I really like Arvidui. Arvidui, uh, we uh, just is for those Dunedain heads out there, we talked about uh, he tried to claim the kingship of Gondor during the King's Strife. Oh yeah, he did. Yeah, didn't get it, but didn't get it because his wife was uh, daughter of Andoher, son uh, of the line of Anarion. Yeah, line which of is Anarion, why yeah. Aragorn is also descendant of the Anarion. There it is. Boom. Boom. Both houses. Oh, I want to. Rep- uh, yeah, in a past episode, we said that Aragorn is descended from Anarion through his mother. What I meant was through his, uh, through uh, Arvidui's. His father's mother. Or his, well, his great, great, his 16 generations removed. So Aranarth's mother was from the gotcha. line of Anarion. Okay. So I not Gilrain the Fair, as you might think, Okay. based on what I said. It was a total mistake of mine. I was just listening to it yesterday. <laughs> That's what I've noticed. So yeah, retract that. Not through Gilrain the Fair, but through Arvidui. Dope. All right, so let's get, the, some, let's get into some Elder Days shit, dog. Yeah, so we thought we'd uh, sort of end our lesser-known battles episode off with a fun one. This is a first-stage battle, and this is actually an elf on dwarf battle, mm. which doesn't happen all that much. Yeah, some hot dwarf on elf action. Yeah, this has a lot to do with the bad blood, the disparity between the elves and the dwarves that you know is so commonly talked about. Mm-hmm. And the battle we're talking about is the Battle of Sarn Athrad. Let's get back in the way, way, way back machine. And go to 502, first stage. 
King Thingol of Doriath has asked the dwarves of Norgrod to make the to uh, remake the Nalglamir and set in it the Silmaril he received from Baron. Yeah, the dwarven craftsmen from Nagrod performed this task, but they were secretly determined to possess the finished work and carry it off to their home. So when Thingol was ready to place the completed necklace on his neck, the dwarves basically challenged his right to own it. They're like, you know, who are you to own the necklace of uh, King Felagund of Nagathrond? Yeah, like it was because they gave him. Yeah, they gave it to Nagathrond. They gave it to Felagund. They didn't give it to Thingol. So they're like, and then. Um, so Thingol tries to put on the necklace and the dwarves basically refuse oh, to dude. <laughs> give it to him. And then Thingol straight up rebukes the dwarves. And when we say rebukes, we just read this a couple weeks ago in our, and I got to read this part out loud in, our, in, the, in, our, in the Silmarillion read-along yeah. group that we do every week. He is, rebukes them. He's yeah. really rude to them. He's, he says, what does he say? He says, ye of uncouth race, remember? Yeah. <laughs> Who do you, is like basically? Who do you think you are? You yeah. have uncouth race yeah. to claim, you know, this work of the elves and stuff. And yeah, he gets real mad. I just remember you of uncouth race. <laughs> yeah, I just remember just like whoa, because I remember reading it and everyone was just like, I could hear everybody reacting, and I was like, all right, I gotta go hard on this thing all <laughs> quote, and I was just like giving it everything I got, and everyone was just like, yeah, it was yeah, it's satisfying to see those who have never read the story before hit some of those. Yeah, some of those it's, epic moments. It's great. So at this point, the dwarves, they don't say anything. They just kill the king where he stands. So this yeah. is the death of King Thingol. Yeah. He's yeah. slaughtered in his own house, in his own like king smithies. Of, yeah, king of Beleriand in general, really. Right. And so the ensuing conflict basically leads to the sacking of Doriath by the dwarves. And that's the first sacking. of Doriath. That's the first sacking, yeah. But it was brutal. Yeah. And after the sacking of the kingdom of Doriath, the dwarves of Nagrod were returning to Nagrod, heavily laden and slowed by the spoils of their victory. They took all the treasure they could. Oh, yeah. And they were attempting to cross the river Gellion at Sarnathrod, or excuse me, Sarnathrod, which is, is uh, known as the Ford of Stones. And the dwarves, they climbed up Gellion's banks, um, the, in the air filled with the sound of elven horns and the shafts of arrows, because why... They were assailed by Layla Quendi of Assyria and led by Baron Urkamian. Doo, 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 doo. And, and a, accompanied by his son, Dior. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I, I didn't know that Dior was there. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, might as well. But yeah, they uh, they go they go head to head with these motherfuckers because uh, they heard what happened in Doriath and they left Tolgalan to deal with this shit. Yeah, they came to fuck shit up. Yeah. Because that's uh, Dior's family. Right. Oh, yeah, that's their family. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, dude. That's Dior's grandfather, Baron's father-in-law. Yeah, Pissed. the king of the Doriath, that's, yeah, that's their line. That's they come their from people. there. And uh, Baron actually slew the Lord of Nargrod uh, and took from him the Naglamir. And as uh, Joel said so brilliantly earlier, he actually slew him single-handedly. Pun intended. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, you might say he did it single-handedly. single-handedly. <laughs> If you don't get that joke, go back to our Baron and Luthien character profile. Where we talk about how he got his hand cut off. Yeah, exactly. Or Camion means one-handed. Yeah, he basically had like a Luke Skywalker moment. And just Well, it was bitten off by a damn Yeah, it wasn't wolf. cut off. It was bit off. But yeah. either way. So as the Lord of Nagrod was dying, though, he cursed all of the treasure that they had taken from Doriath. And the curse remained on that treasure. So what did they do with it? Baron and the elves took all this cursed dwarven elf treasure and they decided to dump it in the nearby river of Askar. Afterwards, the river of Askar was renamed Rathlorien, which is Golden Bed. Yeah, so that was a uh, so that was a pretty cool battle, you know, elves on dwarves. It's not yeah. something that happens too much, and it explains that that bad blood between the two races that goes on for so many centuries. Mm-hmm. And it got it's got Baron fucking squaring off with a right. dwarf lord. Yeah, yeah, a one handed Baron and a dwarf lord, and Baron's son is there, and they're all kicking ass. Yeah. Like, yeah, it it's a pretty sweet battle, and so we'll. Uh, We'll go ahead and end off our uh, section about the Battle of Sarn Athrag with an excerpt about it. In that time, a messenger came to them out of Doriath, telling them what had befallen there. Then Baron arose and left Tolgalan, and summoning to him Dior, his son, they went north to the river Askar, and with them many of the green elves of Assyrian. Thus it came to pass that when the dwarves of Nargrod, returning from Menegroth with diminished hosts, came again to Sarn Athrod, they were assailed by unseen enemies. For as they climbed up Gellion's banks, burdened with the spoils of Doriath, 
Suddenly all the woods were filled with the sound of elven horns, and the shafts sped upon them from every side. There very many of the dwarves were slain on the first onset, but some escaping from the ambush held together and fled eastward toward the mountains, and they climbed the long slopes beneath Mount Dolmed. There came forth the shepherds of the trees, and they drove the dwarves into the shadowy woods of Arid Lindon, whence it is said, came never one to their homes. In that battle, by Sarn Athrod, Baron fought his last fight, and himself slew the lord of Norgrod, and wrestled from him the necklace of the dwarves. Just as a little side note there, the ants get involved. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was actually something that I hadn't remembered previously yeah, until I did yeah. this. I didn't remember that until halfway through reading that quote. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh shit. Yeah, the dwarves, okay, yeah, so it was an elf on dwarf and it included the ants. Like, this is a crazy fucking battle. Yeah. Like, the, the dwarves that made it out of the battle tried to run up the slopes, and then the ants came out and drove them into the trees, like that deleted scene in the two towers mm-hmm. with all the orcs running mm-hmm. to the trees. Yeah, this is like gone, the, the end of the first stage when everything is wild as fuck. Right. Like, and all this wild shit is going as on. As we uh, heard after the uh, Battle of uh, the Hornburg, the trees took all the bodies. Yeah, the, it says none of these dwarves ever made it home. Yeah, I imagine these trees probably took all the... We know they take bodies, so yeah. that, that's just one more terrifying detail. Yeah. What do they do with them? I, I imagine it's got to be like a fertilizer type thing, right? Like, <laughs> what do they I mean, like? You know, after all those, I mean, it's, they're going to rot and die, so yeah. trees need fertilizer, right? I mean, yeah. just it's cut, terrifying, though. Cut to a bunch of ants just smoking weed out of a dwarf skull. <laughs> just, <laughs> 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 well, that's about all we've got for you guys today in our yeah. lesser-known battles. This was hella fun. I want to do more and more of these. Yeah, these were great. Let us know what you guys thought. Do you have any suggestions? You thought we gave each of these battles justice? Hit us up on social media. Yeah, hit us up about your favorite lesser-known battle, because, yeah, if we want to do more of these in the future, it'll be nice to know, because there's so many battles. Oh, yeah, like we started off saying, so many. You cut this list down from, like what, 15 or something? From, like, 15 down to, like, 8. Yeah. Eight or nine. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's all we've got for you today, guys. Thanks for listening to KOT Podcast. Yeah. Make sure you follow us on social media um, at KOT Podcast on Twitter. If you want to follow me, I am at Danny J. That's J-A-Y-K-O-T on Twitter as well. And uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash official keep on Tolkien. And while you're there, be sure to join the uh, KOT Talk group. Yeah, and uh, there you can ask questions and discuss with other listeners. We post funny uh, Lord of the Rings jokes and, and stuff. Yeah, start, we're talking there. Yeah, start debates. We've got a, a book club that's going on in there right now. Yes, yes, yeah. We just uh, uh, yeah, our, we just finished the Quintus Silmarillion in our book club. Yeah, come tune in with us. Uh, if pictures are more your thing, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Keep on Tolkien Podcast. And uh, be sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That will be at that website, forward slash keep on Tolkien. And uh, yeah, stay up to date on our new episodes. Yeah, and uh, give us a rate and uh, uh, leave a nice review if you like. Um, if you don't like us, you know, that's cool. It's all right. To each his own. Just, <laughs> you know, keep it to yourself. Um <laughs> Um, yes, also, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to our Patreon patrons. Yeah, your help really, your support really helps us so much. Um, yeah, so what Patreon is, is uh, uh, it's a uh, subscription service that helps uh, uh, fund us. And if you want to check that out, it's www.patreon.com slash keep or KOT podcast. And uh, KOT podcast is still a 100% DIY operation. It still comes out of our pockets and donations help so, so, so much. If you would like to donate to the Patreon, it also gets you some great exclusive content. And that exclusive content is almost always not safe for work. We like to have some fun with the Patreon content. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're working on uh, making more and more of that. So if you, you know, I apologize that we've been a little bit derelict on it, but we're going to throw some, we're trying to get in the habit of making stuff. So that'll, uh, we're kind of going through a renaissance of our Patreon right now. So bear with us. But anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for donating if you have already. Yeah. And if not, yeah, give it a give us a subscribe for a little bit. You can also uh, set your own donation and cancel whenever. So, you know, things happen. If you can't afford it anymore, you can't afford it anymore. But that's about all we've got for you today, guys. I am Danny J. And I am Joel N. And as always, keep, keep on, on talking. Oh, Ray and Tulaba. <laughs>